Not sure if you've ever experienced this in your church history, church history, past, whatever, but sometimes Christians get into disagreements. You know, I know it's shocking, right? Sometimes Christians disagree, and they could disagree on the color of the carpet, they can disagree on worship songs, what the pastor should be wearing or not wearing, but sometimes they disagree on doctrine. Sometimes they disagree on theology, which has led people to say, well, we don't need theology then. We just need love. That's all we need. One such disagreement is this. Here's a critical question. Are people born basically good or are people born basically sinful? Churches have been fighting over that one since the church was established. Back in the fourth century, there was a famous disagreement between a guy named Augustine and a fellow named Pelagius. And Pelagius had read some of Augustine's writings and decided this guy's crazy. People are not basically sinful. We're born basically good. We have the power to not sin if we want to. We're basically good people. Pelagius maintained that people were born basically good. Augustine maintained that people were basically sinful and had no choice but to sin due to the original sin of Adam and Eve before us. Think about it. That question is a massively important question in our biblical worldview. Depending on what side you are on of the answer to that question, that impacts just about everything, everything in the way that you see the world and especially the people in the world. Who is right? And as we need to do when we're faced with theological questions of deep significance such as this, we need to ground ourselves firmly in the Word of God. And so we're going to do that today. If you're not there already, Romans 3. We are making our way through Romans. Last week, Pastor Josh took us into chapter 3 of Romans where Paul continued to explore the idea or the thought that the Jews had some advantage over the Gentiles. Recall they were saying, hey, maybe because we're the people of God that God will cut us some slack in the sin department on Judgment Day. And surely the nation of Israel was special. God created them. He gave them the law. He gave them the oracles. He gave them the temple. He gave them the presence of his, his, his presence in the ark. But he said, clearly, you're under no advantage when it comes to sin itself. Oddly enough, Paul is going to use those very oracles this week to show them how, though special, it does not mean that they're any more immune to the effects of sin than anyone else. So let's jump into Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We can feel the frustration of the Jews here this morning and certainly in those first couple verses. Wait, hold on here, Paul. Pump the brakes. Are you saying that we are no better off than the Gentiles? Seriously? And Paul says, nope, not even a bit. You are not any better off than the Gentiles. And it's important to, to keep the context here. Better off in terms of what? And the answer is sin. Because he said that the Jews do have an advantage, right? They have blessings in being the nation of Israel. But as far as sin, as far as condemnation and judgment, no. Everyone is alike under sin, he says. 
There's no advantage when it comes to the judgment of sin. God is not going to cut them any slack in judging their sin. Reason, Paul answers his own question. We already talked about this. We've already established this. It's what I've been saying in the last two chapters. Because for, he says, love how Paul always answers his own questions. For everyone is in the same boat when it comes to sin. Verse 9 says both Jews and Greeks, meaning everyone on the planet, are under sin. What does he mean by under sin? He goes on, again, ironically enough, using those oracles of God that they were clinging to last week as part of their privilege. He's going to turn that around and use it to prove the point that everyone is alike under sin. And he drops the classic, as it is written, which you guys know means he's about to quote some Old Testament. And he's going to quote a lot of Old Testament. He starts in Psalm 14. In the first three verses. Now it's also important to know that Paul and most other New Testament writers, when they are quoting scripture, uh-oh, stuck pages, okay, we're good. When quoting scripture, they don't always quote it word for word. A lot of times they're using the Septuagint version, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that's already a little off. But most of the time, anyway, New Testament writers are going to go for a summary as opposed to quoting it word for word. But he starts in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The general sense here in our natural state, not a single person on earth is righteous. No one naturally understands. No one naturally seeks for God. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. In our natural state, we think God is a joke. In our natural state, we sin. Remember chapter 1? Paul dropped the theological nuclear bomb that everyone in the world knows that God exists, but they suppress the truth of his existence in their sin. They ignore that fact. Therefore, as the psalmist says, they are fools. Only a fool would say in his heart, despite overwhelming clear evidence that God exists, that there is no God. This happens every day. People suppress the knowledge of God in their sin, and it only proves that the default nature of every person on earth, no one is righteous, and they don't get it. Some don't even seem to care. We all, Jews, Gentiles, Americans, whoever or whomever, we're all alike under sin. Why? Because we're all under the curse of sin. And so I'll say the first point this way. Sin has infected every part of human nature. sin has infected every part of human nature. This is a foundational theological truth and one of the first order issues of our faith. Sin has infected every part of our human nature. What this means, like Augustine said, is that we are not born inherently good. We are born rather sinful to our core. The doctrine of original sin from Adam and Eve, who were our first parents, our federal heads. They spread the curse of sin to all of humanity. It's the doctrine of total depravity. 
Wayne Grudem puts it this way as he defines it. Every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, our goals, and our motives, and even our physical bodies. Total depravity, though, does not mean that we are as bad as we possibly could be. Keep that in mind. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad or as evil as we possibly could be, but rather it means we are totally affected, every part of us infected and affected in some way by sin. And church, it is hard to overstate the importance of this doctrine. There's no better text than Romans 3 and quoting Psalm 14 to go to in order to prove this. However, we also can look at a text like Psalm 51.5, which David says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We also can go a few pages in Romans, in Romans 5.12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Luther put it like this, by one sin, Adam makes all those who are born of him guilty of the same sin as his and gives them what he has, though it is quite foreign to them. Therefore, we are damned by a foreign sin. That's where some of the rub comes in. It's like, well, hey, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't eat the apple. But that's not the way it works. They were our first parents, and we are damned and cursed by sin from our first parents. Calvin wrote that all of us were born infected with the contagion of sin. In fact, before we saw the light of this life, we were soiled and spotted in God's sight. In church, again, this is a massively important doctrine that affects our worldview. It is one of the primary lenses in which we see the world do we see the world and the people in it as born basically good or basically sinful? We either see them as primarily good or primarily sinful. And the Bible says that we're all born sinners separated from God and therefore in need of salvation and reconciliation by God. The Bible clearly proclaims that we're all under the curse of sin. Historic apostolic Christianity upheld this. I do not have nearly the time to go into all the quotes from the church fathers that would support this, but they're all there. Yet people still hold out the false idea that people are born basically good. Anyone who believes this probably never had kids. If, if, people, are born, if people are born good, explain toddlers to me. I don't understand that. How does a flawed understanding of this affect us? If we get this wrong, how does this affect us? I'm glad you asked that. Because if we think people are basically good, we've already set foot into some dangerous territories. I'll give you three. We can, the, the dangerous false notion, thinking that we can contribute to our own salvation. The dangerous false nation, notion that life is man-centered and not God-centered. And third, that sin is actually not all that serious. First, we might start to think that if we're already pretty good, then we can do something to contribute to our own salvation. This is the viewpoint of every other religion on the planet. We've got to keep remembering that. Biblical Christianity is different than any other religion on the planet. 
Every other religion on the planet says, do these things, eat this, don't eat this, dress like this, go to this pilgrimage, do whatever. And maybe, just maybe, then God will justify you. Biblical Christianity said, we are justified once by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, go and do. It's completely the opposite of every single religion. But if we start to think that we're basically good, then maybe um, I, can, I can help my own position spiritually somehow. We are not already good. And the Bible says that we're actually spiritually dead in sin. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13 says that we were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of our flesh. So we're not only totally depraved, but we're also totally spiritually dead. Dead people can do nothing to help themselves in their spiritual position. Dead people can't call 911 for someone to come and rescue them. And so first, if we get this wrong, we might falsely think that we can contribute something to our own salvation. Second danger, if we think we're basically pretty good, then we can see how Christianity might be morphed into more of a man-centered religion than a God-centered religion. That God is out to make our already pretty good lives just a little bit better. That, that it's really good that we have this God option to make our really awesome lives just that much more awesomer. Like God is an add-on to our lives. And let's face it, this is an American problem. You live in a third world country where you have to worry about where your food is coming from every single day. You don't have this problem. We are so surrounded by comfort and excess and pleasure and all of that. We think, actually I am. I'm pretty good already. But what is this God thing? Let me hear about it. Maybe, maybe I can fit it into my life and put it, on, put it in my life somehow. We could, we could morph into thinking that it is a God, man, sorry, a man-centered religion instead of a God-centered religion. What else does that do, church? That then puts God in our service. God, your job is to keep my life comfortable and happy. And if you don't do that, what's up? What are you doing? Did you get it wrong? Don't you understand? No. If we start thinking that we're basically good, we could fall into the trap of thinking it is more of a man-centered religion. And the third danger of getting this wrong, it can lead to a downplaying of the seriousness of sin. If we think we're already pretty good, we're less apt to take sin seriously. I'm basically a good person. I'm better than my neighbor. Everybody messes up once in a while. Nobody's perfect. But yet sin is a violation of God's law. And it's our default state we are naturally bent inward to sin, bent inward to pleasing ourselves and not pleasing God. And we have to realize when we sin against a holy God, it is a very serious matter. That is why we need salvation from outside us, not our own selves. We are not our own savior. It is impossible, and it comes down to the doctrine of total depravity and, and original sin. We need to throw ourselves on the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only cure for the sin that has infected every part of our human nature. And if sin has infected every part of our human nature, then you can imagine what that does to society. It branches out and greatly affects our relationships with others. That's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps are under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And in the, and the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Fresh from summarizing Psalm 14, Paul goes into rapid-fire, quote-fest mode of other Old Testament scriptures to prove this doctrine beyond a shadow of a doubt. I've listed them in your sermon outline. There are far too many to go to each one of them this morning. But also keep in mind, he's mostly summarizing them. So when you go there, you're going to think, well, these are not exactly the same thing. And they're not. He's quoting them. He's summarizing them in, in, in the way that he's quoting them. But did you catch the gist of his argument? Verse 12 tells us that all people have turned away from God. Together, they have all become worthless. He says, not even one does good. And Paul goes to list specific ways that this is coming true in the words and actions of people. He says, their throats are an open grave meaning their words are defiling and dishonoring. Have an open grave at that time would be incredibly dishonoring. Not only that, you have a dead body in a hole in the ground. If somebody's walking around, they could fall into said hole in the ground with dead body. It's, it's a metaphor for causing more death. Their throats, or their tongues rather, they deceive others. They lie to one another, they mislead one another, they trick one another. Their words are toxic poison like venom from a snake. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Not only in deeds, but in words, right? Words wound us deeply. Paul quotes from all of these these psalms, Psalm 5, 140, Psalm 10, and Proverbs 1, he proves his point, and then he drops a big summary statement. Why? There is no fear of God before their eyes. David read it for us this morning from Psalm 36. A lack of fear of God means a lack of respect for who God is, a lack of honoring him, a lack of deferring to him as the most important It's an ambivalence to him as the king of kings and God of all. Dr. Tom Schreiner writes, Sin at its heart de-centers God. It de-gods God. It rejects his rule over our lives. He goes on to quote Calvin who says simply, All wickedness flows from a disregard of God. All wickedness, all sin flows from from a disregard or a lack of fear of God. And so I'll say the second point this way. Sin has affected every aspect of human behavior. Sin has affected every aspect of human behavior. You might be tempted to think, well, some days I feel like sin is all around me. Some days I turn on the news or I see wickedness all around me and sin all around me. But you know, other days, Pastor Mike, the world seems to be okay. Like, people seem to be pretty nice. Like, my family's pretty nice. My my kids are actually pretty nice today. My neighbors. Nonetheless, church, sin has infected and affected every aspect of human behavior to certain degrees, right? We talked about last week how we're responsible for the, the amount of law that we know, the amount of God's law. We will be judged by God's law. But we also said that some people 
naturally obey through natural law, naturally obey more of God's law than other people, right? We all know people that we would say are pretty good people, right? It means they naturally obey more of God's law somehow. They, they have that sense, almost like God put it there, right? It's part of the Imago Dei that he stamps on our soul. We all know right from wrong somehow, and God put it there. We also wonder how some people can do such horrific things. It's the continuing impact of sin on human behavior. The more ground sin takes in our hearts, the more horrific things that we can do. You wonder how people do the things that they can do. It's because they continue to be given over. Remember Romans 1? They continue to be given over to their sins more and more. This is where we can be thankful for the common grace of God, which is actively restraining sin. One of the purposes of the law is the muzzle we talked about, the threefold purposes of the law, the map, the muzzle, right, and the mirror. This is the muzzle, God's law. The sense of God's law on every single human being's heart in some way restrains sin. Most people walk around thinking that murder is bad, right? Just an example. That's what that means, that muzzling them from doing this. It's God's active restraint of evil. Can we imagine, as bad as it seems some days, can we imagine what it would be like if there was no sense of God, if there was no sense of God's law, if God removed his restraining hand of grace? This world would implode in probably 45 minutes. But we also... On a smaller scale, with our relationships with each other, we see how this doctrine of original sin and total depravity affects us. How many of those Old Testament quotations that Paul used just a few moments ago dealt with our words? Every one of us can give testimony to how we've been wounded in words. How many times someone has wounded us with words, or how many times we have wounded others with sinful words. Words, poisonous words coming from mouths full of cursing and bitterness. How powerful are our words, church? They can be used for blessing or for cursing, destruction or healing. Can we just pause and reflect as the church of Jesus Christ how important our words are? We are called to use all things in our lives to glorify God and our words are one of them. Jesus tells us that we will give an account for every careless word that we have spoken. And yet, how many words all day do we use? James famously talks about this in James chapter 3, starting in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, but yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a word, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth the same from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Sin has impacted and affected every single aspect of our behavior. And Paul says, hey, exhibit A is our words. We see that coming through in our words. But sin not only has consequences for the here and now, looming in the background of what Paul has been saying for these last two chapters is the future judgment of God. God using the standard of his law, and that's where Paul is going to land the plane this morning. Look at verse 19. He says, For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Ah, yes, back to the law, back to judgment. These two verses, excuse me, verses 19 and 20, are a summary of the last two chapters. Did you catch what Paul was saying in these two verses about the law of God? Specifically, who is under the judgment of God's law? And he says, answer, everyone. Again, put this in the context of the Jews thinking that they had a special advantage as the people of God when it came time to judgment for sin. He makes it abundantly clear, you do not. Schreiner, again, helps us here by saying this, if the Jews had failed to be vindicated via the law, then no one will be justified by obedience to it. Look at verse 19 again. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world is going to be held accountable to God at judgment under God's law. Jump back to chapter 2. Remember what Paul said in chapter 2 in verse 12. For all have sinned, all who have sinned without the law will also, also perish without the law. And all have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's what I was saying before. We all have some sense of God's law. It's written on our hearts. We have morality stamped on our hearts from our creator to some degree. But the Jews, right, they knew God's law. They memorized God's law. They saw God's law. They had the sacrifices. They'll be held to a much higher standard. So Paul's actually saying, guess what? Instead of a lax standard, you guys will be held to a greater standard because of all people, you know the law better than anyone. The Jews who so intimately knew the law, they will be held to that standard. But even Gentiles knew some of the law because it's written on our hearts. So who will be held responsible for the law? Everyone. Every single person on earth will be judged according to the perfect standard of God's law. And how many of us have broken God's law? All of us. Worse yet, we know we have. That's what verse 20 says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, watch this, comes knowledge of sin. First, Paul clarifies that it is impossible to be justified by obedience to the law. Primary reason, you've already broken the law. Before you even get the chance to say, I wonder if I could do this, I wonder if I could obey perfectly, you're out. You've already broken the law by the time you were two years old or whatever the first time was you disobeyed your parents, right? We know that, and we know in and of our hearts we break the law all the time. So it's impossible, it's logically impossible to be, try to be vindicated by something in which we've already violated. It doesn't make any sense. It can't happen. The law was never meant to justify us. But the law was meant, as Paul says, to show us our sin. Because when we sin, don't we feel that? 
We feel that guilt. We know something just happened. That's how the law of God works in our hearts. We break God's law and we feel guilty. We become aware of our sin because of the law of God and what just happened when we broke it. Paul illustrates this a few chapters from now and stealing from a future sermon in Romans 7, starting in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? The law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says this is the perfect standard of God. It is perfect. It is good. There's nothing wrong with the law of God but we've all broken it. And we've all broken it because the law says do not covet. And so guess what? It triggers in your mind, I think I should covet. And we covet and we break God's law. Parents, you know how this works. Kids, don't touch whatever the thing is. I'm going to leave the room. I'll be back. What happens? The first thing on the agenda list is touch that thing, right? Immediately. It's how it works in our minds. And then, of course, you judge the kids according to your law, which you told them, don't touch. And they just touched, right? But that idea of not touching it, what? Made them want to do that all the more. Same way with sin in us. That's the way it works with God's law. One day Jesus will come back, and he will come back to judge. And we have all failed. And we will be judged accordingly. And without an intercessor or without a mediator, we are all in eternal trouble. So third point, we are all subject to God's judgment under God's law. We're all subject to God's judgment under God's law. The law says do not commit adultery and honor marriage. So what happens? We're tempted by porn or we fantasize about another person. The law says do not steal and what happens? We're tempted to get what we think we need by cutting corners or doing anything necessary or just taking it outright. The law says to honor God and have no other gods before him. But yet we put all kinds of gods before him. Career, money, family, business, sports, whatever. And we all feel that conviction. That's the mirror effect of the law. right? We look in a mirror, we see ourselves, we look into the perfect mirror of God's law and we see how we've broken God's law. When Jesus returns, we will all be in judgment, and without a mediator, we are all sunk. We break God's law. We feel it. We feel guilty, the condemnation, the conviction of the law, the knowledge of sin, as Paul says, is there. And so that is our dilemma. That is all of our dilemma. Every single human being on the planet, this is our dilemma. The consequences of total depravity. That sin has infected every part of our human nature, and it is affected every aspect of our human behavior. And the worst part of it all, we're all subject to God's judgment and we're all accountable to God under his law. That's the bad news. Welcome to Highlands Bible Church. 
That's the bad news. And I want to let you in on this little preacher struggle that I've been having all week because this just ends on the bad news. And the good news starts next week. But church, the good news is not good news unless we know the bad news. Sometimes we do so much danger to ourselves. Jesus saves, yes, but saves from what? What are we saved from? Unless we sit and we soak and we understand in the dilemma that we are in, that we have all broken God's law and that we are all subject to his judgment by that law and without a mediator, we are sunk. We have to feel that. We have to feel that we need a savior and it's not us. It can't be us. That's the bad news. And the bad news sets up the glorious good news of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we're too quick to get to the good news, that we skip the bad news. It sets up this obvious realization, and here's the big idea. We need salvation from sin's consequences. We need salvation from sin's consequences. The doctrine of total depravity not only has a tremendous effect on our worldview, it shows us that people are born sinful. Augustine was right. People are born sinful. We are cursed by sin. Thank you, Adam and Eve. And let's face it, it's difficult to process this. I remember I was witnessing with one of the waitresses next door, and she was trying to get her head around that. She's like, we're all born sinful? It just doesn't compute. Why? Because it's in the air that we breathe in America that we're awesome. From the time we're two, we're told we're awesome. We get all kinds of awesome participant trophies and everything's just about us and our awesomeness. And then we find out that we're not. Especially in the eyes of our creator. We've broken his law. But that's the beauty of the good news, church. It sets up that. We've sinned. We're subject to God's judgment. These things have been argued about for hundreds of years, but Romans 3 is crystal clear. Luther put it this way. So brilliant. I love Luther. Diligently learn the doctrine of original sin and don't argue about the reason why God permitted it. Rather, ask how we may be saved and freed from it. Original sin and total depravity are plainly seen all around us and, of course, in our own hearts. We are born sinful. We are all subject to God's judgment by the standard of God's law. And what Luther says is right on. Don't argue about it. The biggest question is how we can be saved or freed from it. And that sets up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that our way out of this is a social, a legal, or political solution. We can't legislate this. We can't solve this with critical race theory and social justice. It's not a social problem as much as it is, to start with, an individual problem. We all have to come to that reckoning that we have all sinned and are all subject to God's judgment, and we need salvation from sin's consequences. How do we get this salvation? That is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, which will be next week. Paul will go into that, but for now, we contemplate the consequences of total depravity, and we need to feel a little bit of that weight and a little bit of that urgency to come to that realization of who we are really before our Creator and the depth of what He's provided us to save us from sin's 
consequences. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This is a difficult word for us to process, Lord, and it's an even more difficult word for us to process if we are not in Christ. We don't have the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to the truth of this. We don't have the conviction. And so I do pray, Lord, that if there are those here that have not bowed the knee to Christ and realized that they are under God's law and have broken God's law, subject to God's judgment, I pray that they would do that today. They would place their faith in Christ. But for us, Lord, who have? Father, we pray that we would look at things rightly, look at the world biblically, that we would praise God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ and saving us from sin's consequences. And we would not embrace the yoke of sin. We would instead celebrate the Savior and live like it. May we be bold in pointing out the solution to our society's problems is salvation from the consequences of sin. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.